The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning. I invite you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of the scripture, you'll find one under a chair in front of you. We're on page 995. We're going to give our attention today to 2 Timothy 2, verses 14 to 19. Our subject is rightly handling the word. So it is my prayer that God will now take his word and apply it to our hearts and to our lives. I invite you, if you would, to stand as the word of God is read. Second Timothy 2, beginning in verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let's pray. Lord God, you have entrusted us with your holy word. We thank you for it. It is indeed living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is powerfully at work in the lives of your people. You call each of us, Lord, as your children to rightly handle your precious word that we may be good stewards and and diligent servants for your glory. So God, as we come now to the study of your word, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things. Teach us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this week we focus in 2 Timothy. Next week we will begin a series, an expositional series, working our way through 1 Corinthians. I'll say more about this as we come to the end of the message. We're also going to be unveiling some revamped material on how we study together on a week-to-week basis. And in light of that, I wanted to bring this message on rightly handling the Word. I could just single out this one phrase and preach on that, finding other places in the Scripture, But first, showing you how to rightly handle the word, I want to share this text in its context, in its original meaning. The main idea before us is that before God, we must rightly handle his word when studying and sharing, resulting in right assurance and right living. So if we're going to rightly handle the Bible, there's an assumption that there's a wrong way to handle the Bible. This is a wrong way to preach it. It regularly happens the wrong way to study it, and far too often that happens. It surrounds and swirls us in a postmodern society 
where anybody can say what they want to and we have to validate it. Brothers and sisters, some things said in the name of God are just wrong. Recently, a very famous pastor was preaching on Genesis 127, which teaches that we are made in the image of God. This was posted to Instagram of his own doing on July the 10th. It has resulted in 179,000 views. This is what he said, quote, God needed someone to show the world what he looked like or else he would have just been a concept. God would have been an abstract theory. Hmm. Acts 17, verse 24. The Lord God made the world and everything in it. That includes us, made in his image, right? God made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he, you know the rest of it, needed anything. What that preacher said is heresy, brothers and sisters. It goes against the very self-existent nature of God himself. God is I am. He, He doesn't need you. He doesn't need you in any way, shape, fashion, or form, and he doesn't need me. He's God. And that's what the Bible reveals about him. We are all prone to mishandle the Bible. Hopefully not in such an egregious way, but we are all prone to do it. So we need to give serious consideration to 2 Timothy 2 and what it's teaching. First, let's look at it from the negative angle. That before God, we must not mishandle his word when studying and sharing. In verse 14, he says, remind them of these things. So when I I read that phrase, remind them of these things, I better know what these things are, right? So let's go back and pick up in verse 8. We actually could read the whole letter up to this moment. But let's just go to verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is trustworthy. This saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, he will, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him... He will also deny us if we are faithless. This is where we know God doesn't need us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He's God. Remind them of these things, he says, and charge them before God, the self-existent God, Remind them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So right away, we see two ways to mishandle the Bible. First, failure to remind people. This is a tremendous pressure that a preacher feels. And if you've taught any form of a classroom or any small group or anything in the church, you feel this pressure that I've always got to be new and fresh and Now, I think you ought to study and prepare. That's what we're talking about today. But this desire to be new and fresh and have something new to say is dangerous. Brothers and sisters, all we need is the word. 
And we needed to remind one another of what the Word of God says. The second way to mishandle, besides failure to remind, is to quarrel about words or to split hairs. To charge them before God not to quarrel about words. A fascination or a disagreement. One of the main ways we see this is a disagreement about the end times. Now, after the last service, somebody walked up to me and said, okay, well, your opening illustration, you did exactly what he said. You said not to quarrel about words. You were quarreling about what some preacher said. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Here's the difference. (laughs) The difference between quarreling about a word and heresy are two different things. When somebody clearly says something that is out of bounds of the Bible, we need to call it what it is. So where would you be quarreling about words? I'll just uh, illustrate this with a video that was on social media yesterday with this lady doing a speech about a monster drink can and how it reveals the mark of the beast. I'm sorry, it's a little bit funny. (laughs) I'm not belittling the lady, but... I mean, she goes on and on with every mark, and when you turn it upside down, and I mean, it's just... This is how this lady's likely been taught in church. That you go over here in this book, and you get this letter, and then you go over and you get this Hebrew word, and these numbers, and when you do scriptural calculus, and you put it all together, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. And people go, wow. That leads to quarreling. The Bible was never intended to be used that way to where you piecemeal it together in places to say what you're trying to get it to say. Also, he says, avoid irreverent babble. Irreverent means pointless or worthless. Kind of significant here. It means accessible to everybody. So this is just worldly, godless, irreligious talk. Babble, no value, just empty talk. I don't know, have you ever, you ever been to a, a church service, hopefully this is not happening right now, where you're listening to a preacher and you're just like, what? What is he talking about? It's just all disjointed, it's all over the place, platitudes and little quips, sayings, and you're like, what, what is going on here? That is not what we are to do. We're not to just be, be talking about spiritualized language all the time. That's just irreverent babble. So, you know, preacher, you're being a little bit too hard. What's the big deal? People are sincere. Well, you can be sincerely wrong. Meaningless talk in the name of Jesus has deep consequences. Deep consequences. Now look at what they are. Verse 14. Which does no good but ruins the hearers. The word ruin is the opposite of edification or building up. It means to tear down to upset someone to a serious degree, it's catastrophic. So when when we give ourselves to mishandling the Bible, we're ruining the people. We're tearing down the people who hear. Verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. It will lead people into more ungodliness. So as people think the Bible is this disjointed, meaningless, blah, 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 blah. You you remember the Peanuts cartoon? Some of you are old enough to remember that. Remember the teacher? Wah, 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 wah. For some of us, that's all we hear in the Bible. So if that's all we think the Bible is, then we just do what we want to do. That's what he's saying. If you just treat the teaching of the Bible like irreverent babble, 
people are going to go into more and more ungodliness. And I'm convinced of this. One of the reasons you see so much rampant sin in the church today is because the Bible's not being taught. Then it says, their talk will spread like gangrene. You may not know what gangrene is, but that's an infection in an, in an open wound or in a wound inside of your body. And what happens is that this infection can grow rapidly and literally lead to death within days or hours if it is not treated. So what he's saying is this is not just limited to one person. When we mishandle the Bible, what is being espoused and taught spreads like gangrene. Then he singles out these two named individuals, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved. They've missed the truth entirely. It's an arrow illustration. They've missed the target. They're proclaiming the resurrection has already happened. They're saying Jesus has already come. And he says they are upsetting the faith of some. Now, Paul's already removed this man, 1 Timothy 1.20, from the church at Ephesus. That's who he's writing to. Timothy's the pastor at Ephesus. He's already had this man removed, according to 1 Timothy 1.20, but this guy's still causing trouble. And when you tolerate these kind of teachers in your life or you sit under them, you're not only causing yourself trouble, you're causing others trouble as well. Now I want you to look at 1 Timothy 6. Just turn back a few pages. Now he's going to describe someone who's teaching false doctrine and disagreeing with the gospel of Christ. Now he's going to explain their motive. And you think he leaves the subject if you're not reading carefully. Verse 3 through 10 of 1 Timothy 6, connect. So I want you to ask this question while I'm reading. What is the motivation of this false teacher. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. For we have food and clothing that these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So I have a question for you. What's the primary motivation of these false teachers? What do they want? Money. Money. And here's what they're teaching others. God wants you to be rich. So here, if you're going to be rich, then you need to give lots of money to my ministry. And when you give lots of money to my ministry, God's going to bless you and he's going to multiply it in your life and you're going to get rich too. But when you give lots of money to my ministry, who's the primary person getting rich? It's me. <laughs> it's the teacher. I mean, we're having ridiculous conversations like 
Should these prosperity preachers have an airplane? What? I could see that conversation with Paul around the fire. Paul, should you have your own ship? Brothers and sisters, we've lost our minds. And the reason that we're buying into this so-called prosperity gospel, which is not the gospel, it is a false gospel, is because we're Americans. And Americans want more and more and more and more. So we hear these preachers who are taking the Bible, twisting it and turning it, making you the center of the universe, and God is for you, and God wants to bless you and give you and give you and give you to where you're misreading the Bible and mishandling it all together. Just simply say this. Don't listen to those people at all. Refuse the false teaching. Turn away from it. Don't read their books. Don't support them in any way. Find people that rightly handle the truth. So how do you do that? Or why do you do that? We must rightly handle his word when studying and sharing. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of the truth. So what is the word of truth? 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, the Bible, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible is God's inspired word without any mixture of error. It's totally true. So we're to do our best to present ourselves before God. That means take great pain, be conscientious, be genuine as one approved. Present yourself to God as one who has no need to be ashamed. So why would you be ashamed? You would be ashamed for taking the Bible and saying what you want the Bible to say and said exactly what it says. You would be ashamed for not studying the Bible before you're espousing or sharing the Bible or that you take shortcuts in how you approach and study the Word. I just want you to hear how this impacts me and I hope will if it hasn't impacted you. First of all, how can you as a Christian say, I just don't really read the Bible? This is God's word. This is in the book. This is a living book. Secondly, how can you play fast and loose with something that's God's? We better, we better come to terms that we need to rightly handle the word. That means cut it straight. That's what it literally means. Cut the Bible straight. So this is the opposite of quarreling over words and irreverent babble. It means that we rightly handle it. Let me just interject here. The two prominent ways, so if I, I think if Paul was writing an epistle to you today, how would he deal with how you, we, are wrongly handling the Bible? I think he'd say two things. Number one, the meaning of the Bible does not lie with the reader. Say so what? Let me illustrate. I took Shakespeare in college. I'm an English major. I had no idea what Shakespeare meant. 
Anybody with me? We had to read a play a week. I was just lost. And this little bitty professor, Dr. Jeffers, she was so cute. And she would come in and she was so dramatic. She would say, this is how she'd start her lecture. What are your thoughts? What are your feelings? After about five minutes, every day, I do the same thing. Dr. Jeffers, I don't care what the rest of these people think. I don't care what the rest of them feel. Will you just tell me what Shakespeare means? I don't care what you feel. I don't. I don't care what you think the Bible means. I want to know what the Bible means. God has a meaning in the Bible. The original author whom he inspired to write it had a meaning. It is not open for your interpretation to mean what you want it to mean. Number two, I think he would address this. The meaning does not lie with the interpreter. You say, what's the same thing, isn't it? No, no, no. It's those of you who passively sit and listen to me or somebody else teach the Bible and you just take for granted that what I'm saying is right. Let me illustrate this. When I was a young man, young pastor in a church, on Sunday night our pastor was preaching and he said something that I just thought that was out of bounds, what he said. And I was trying to put it together. My, my, my knowledge of the Bible was still very young, but I just, this, this isn't adding up. And I'm standing at the back of the church and I'm actually waiting for him. And I guess I look disturbed because one of the godly older men in our church came up and he said, Jeff, what's wrong? And I said, you know, he said such and such in the sermon. I'm just struggling with it, whatever. And this is what this man said to me, just as straightforward as I could. He looked at me and he said, don't you question what the pastor says. Whoa. Well, I immediately corrected that because 1 Corinthians 14 says to weigh heavily what the prophets say. So you take the Bible and you put it on this side of the scales and you take what me or anyone else who's teaching the Bible says and you see if these two things don't balance, you throw this out and you keep this. The man who handles the word of God properly does not change it pervert it, mutilate it, distort it, or use it with a wrong purpose in mind. They prayerfully interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. Courageously, lovingly, they apply the meaning to concrete conditions and circumstances for the glory of God, the conversion of sinners, and the edification of believers. Now what happens when you rightly handle the word? Verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows to those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, it could just stand on face value what he says. But when you understand that Paul knew the Bible with a command and you pick up on a reference he makes, this becomes very significant. There's an illustration under the statement. In Numbers chapter 16, Korah rebels against Moses. Korah, K-O-R-A-H. And this is Korah's conclusion. He sounds like some members of Baptist churches around here. Korah was determined that Moses self-appointed himself and he wasn't from God. So he got together. He was a chief in the congregation. He got the other, other chiefs of the congregation together and they decided together they were going to oust Moses. 
You're going to get rid of him. So this rebellion rises up this day, and they come to get rid of Moses. And in that, Moses makes this statement. The Lord knows who are his. Then here's what happens. After he says, the Lord knows who, those who are his, the rest of you who are following Korah, you better run to your tent because God's about to show you who are his and who are not. Does anybody know what happened to Korah and 250 other people? The earth swallowed them. Now, you think about that. The earth swallowed them, and Paul says here, but God's firm foundation stands. Here's the hard place to stand. The Lord knows who are his, those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There are two things that result when you rightly handle the Bible. First is right assurance. The Lord knows those who are his. So how do I come to know what the Lord knows? How do I know? I go sit on a mountain and go, Om. How do I know what the Lord knows? I read the Bible. I listen to the Bible taught. So Paul wrote this to Timothy, who is the pastor at Ephesus. Five years early, he wrote a letter to the whole church. It's called Ephesians. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter one. Let's just apply some of this, of how he's getting to this right assurance. Really the whole first three Chapters of Ephesians are getting the right assurance, but let me just extract from verse 11 to 14. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is talking about what God has done. That God has done in saving us, of saving his people and bringing us in Christ together and guaranteeing this salvation through the promised Holy Spirit. So our assurance when we study the Bible is based on the work of God resulting in right living. But when I base my assurance on me, it results in wrong living. It can even look right. This is where legalism comes in, where people think if they do certain things, God's approving of them. No. When I place my assurance on the Lord and what the Lord has done, then what results in my life is right living. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Leave sin. Let everyone who, who, who claims and makes the profession that they are the Lord's. Now, the Lord knows those who are his, and he's revealed how that knowledge is known. And everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, this is fascinating. In the last Greek word, when it says depart from iniquity, literally says apostatize. Now, if you know what apostasy, that's a serious word. You say, whoa, wait a minute, apostatize. Well, it can have a positive meaning as well as a negative meaning. He's not saying leave the faith. Here's what he's saying. Leave sin. Do you understand you're living in a religious world? 
Have you not listened to how people talk about their sexuality now publicly? They talk about it in religious salvation language. Just pay attention. And God says, you take the way of the world, the way the world is saying, this is how you're saved. This is how you reach fulfillment and you depart from that. You apostatize, you reject that. And you embrace the truth of God's word. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity, but let us grab hold of the truth of what God has said. So this, this really begs the question then, how do I rightly handle the word? How do I do this? That don't panic, because on the right side of your page is eight more things, and you're like, dude, you've been preaching a long time. I didn't bring lunch. All right, you're going to have to get ahead of me to read the references because I'm about to move quickly. Here's what you need to do with this. You need to either put this in your Bible or you need to write it in the cover of your Bible until you internalize these eight things, till they become second nature to you. So how do you rightly handle the Bible first? You prayerfully approach the Bible with the expectation to see what needs to be seen. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Prayer is not something you do after you read the Bible. It is something you do before and during your reading of the Bible. Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in your law. Now, some of you are like me. I am task-oriented. I have to be real careful with Bible reading plans because I can get to where, how, how fast can I do this today? How fast can I work through this? And I totally devoid myself of what God intends the Bible to be done with. So to pray before you begin and as you're reading, Lord, open my eyes. Let me see what I need to see. I always read with a pen, a pencil, or a highlighter. And I'm highlighting. I'm pointing out, oh man, this is what I need to see. So look at my Bible right there. See those highlights and marks? That's reading it, praying, God, cause me to see. Second, prayerfully read and study the Bible with the expectation to understand. Some of the Bible's hard. I would, I would even propose this. A lot of the Bible's hard. Psalm 119, 27. Make me understand the ways of your precepts, and I will meditate on your works. <laughs> I love this. The psalmist didn't say, help me understand. He said, what? Make me. In other words, I am so dense. I am so prone to think the wrong way. Lord, make me understand this. Make me understand the way of your precepts. Number three, prayerfully meditate on the Bible to see the character and ways of God. And I'm going to get to application in just a moment with another point. But this is another very American thing. We're reading the Bible about what we ought to do. First thing you need to read the Bible is to see who God is. This is God's word. So you want to see the character, the nature of who God is and the ways of God, how God is moving and acting in the world. Psalm 119, 15. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. So again, this comes back to how we read the Bible or even how we listen to the Bible. So if we imagine the Bible is a lake and you're in a boat. If you read the Bible from a speedboat, you're not going to get who God is. But if you read the Bible as if you're in a glass bottom boat that's easing its way across the lake, 
then you begin to see and perceive what is there. Next, that you prayerfully read and study the Bible to see how it points to Jesus Christ. This is Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Do you know what he said? He interpreted all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. The entirety of the Bible, the Bible as a whole, is intended to point us to Jesus Christ. To point us to our need for Christ or to the work of Christ and what he accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection. That does not mean every verse is doing this. But when you look at the context of the entirety of the Bible, I don't care where you are, it's either going to point you to the need of Christ or to the work of Christ. That's how the Bible is designed. Next, you prayerfully interpret Scripture with Scripture. In Genesis 12, 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord and appeared to him. Now, if I'm reading Genesis 12, To your offspring I will give this land, and I keep reading, eventually Abraham and Isaac have a son, and his name is what? Isaac. Now you think, you're talking about Isaac here. That Isaac's going to inherit this land. That's not who he's talking about. Now how do I know that's not who he's talking about? Because I'm going to interpret the Bible with the Bible. Go to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. If you don't have a Bible that has cross-references, go buy one. You say, I don't know what a cross-reference is. So you read your Bible, and it's got these little letters or numbers above words or in different verses. And then out of the side, it has different references to other places. That means somebody who knows how to study the Bible went ahead of you and said, if you want to understand this verse, go read over here in this other verse, and it'll help you comprehend it. So get you a good Bible that has, helps you study and to move along. If you'll notice, my Bible has no notes in the bottom. I'm not against that. When you're first a believer, you need a good study Bible to help you. ESV study Bible, in my opinion, right now is the best one to read. It'll help you understand it. But be careful. The notes are not inspired. The rest of it is. This is a quote. If you believe that all the Bible is inspired by God and thus non-contradictory, Passages of Scripture that are less clear should be interpreted with reference to those that are more transparent in their meaning. That quote came from this book, 40 Questions About Interpreting Your Bible from Robert Plummer. You need this book. You don't need to sit down and read it as an entirety. It's based on 40 questions. So, for example, when I started preaching in the Psalms, he's got a chapter on how to interpret the Psalms. He has different questions that you pursue. Maybe they're questions that you have, like how did the English Bible come to be? And what influence does that have that it's translated into English? It's just a great resource to have. We have some copies available outside. Next. Prayerfully read and study the Bible with the expectation to believe and to obey. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with all my heart. So I'm reading the Bible the first thing I'm looking for is what should I believe? 
The Bible's pointing my heart and my mind to what I ought to believe. Then it is pointing to what I should obey, what I should do. And when those things are clear, that's what I need to do in light of that which I am to believe. Next, prayerfully read and study the Bible, the expectation to share. Colossians 4 is a prayer. God opened the door for the word is the prayer. As I'm reading and studying and hearing the Bible, you know what ought to happen? Regularly in conversation with other people, what I'm reading and studying and learning in the Bible ought to come up. It doesn't require a Bible study to talk about the Bible. And it's not that you're sitting at dinner with somebody and you're waiting for the moment to say, I'm going to launch this new truth on them right now. No, it's just living life, having conversation. Somebody says or asks something. You're reminded of what the Bible says. The door is opened. You share it with the lost and with the saved. We should expect that we regularly are sharing from the word last that we prayerfully read and study the Bible in community. If you only study the Bible on your own, you're in danger. Now, you ought to study the Bible personally. So this is how my week goes. I study the text. I study the language. Then I enter what I call the great conversation. I study other people who have studied that text. And I often get corrected. On Wednesday, we have a preaching team meeting to where we sit and discuss and I share where I'm headed with the text and I often get corrected or helped. None of you have a pure interpretation of the Bible on your own. That's why you need a church. You need a place where the Bible is taught to you and you need a community to study with. We do this in what we call growth groups. This is why we connect the sermon and the growth group material together so that there's this a, a thought that we're holding and working through throughout the week. We're seeking a right interpretation of the Bible. And where necessary, we're correcting the wrong interpretation of the Bible as it comes up. That's okay. If somebody says something wrong in your growth group, you don't A, ignore it. You don't B, attack them. You gently ask questions. So let's go back to my opening illustration. Had somebody made that comment in a growth group setting to where God needed us so that we know who God was, I would have just took part of what they said and asked this question. So you're saying God needed people. That's what you're saying? It would have been this big awkward pause like right here it would have led to a conversation and hopefully to a correction. None of us want to believe the wrong thing, do we? We want to believe the right things. I'd rather you espouse your wrong belief in a growth group and be corrected than continue to espouse your wrong belief out here in the community and lead people astray. Amen? So next week, I'm going to preach an introduction to 1 Corinthians. Now, here's what you need to do this week. If I'm going to preach an introduction to 1 Corinthians, that means I'm going to hit the high spots of the entire book. I'm not going to read the whole thing in the sermon. Or I'm just going to tell you the main points of 1 Corinthians so you get it in your mind. If I'm going to preach on the introduction of 1 Corinthians, I'm going to do something this week, and you probably ought to do it too. You ought to read 1 Corinthians. That's a great idea, isn't it? Such a novel idea. There's 16 chapters. That means one day you're going to have, or a couple days you've got to read three. 
Take you about 10 minutes. And that's reading it thoughtfully. So read 1 Corinthians this week. Next Sunday, when I preach the introduction, I'm going to explain to you how we've revamped our material to help you study. So next Sunday, you'll, you can pick one of these up today if you want to. This is a study guide. So starting next Sunday, we are going to study 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. All of us. And then I'll come and preach a sermon on it. And then you're going to gather in your growth group after that, and you're going to discuss it. You say, that's going to be redundant, man. It's just too much repetition. Listen to me. Last Sunday, three guys, separate people, preached Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Let's just say I'm a little familiar with it. Just a little bit. I sat over there and was enriched all three times as these brothers preached the word and brought insights from other parts of scripture to bear on that text. Let me just say this. You will never exhaust the study of a text. You'll only be enriched. And I believe this. If you will start studying the Bible together, it will transform this very local church. So if you want to pick one of these up today, they're available out in the lobby on the little plastic stands where you can grab one. They'll start being made available on the website next week, not today. Next week, you'll start working through studying. And together, we want to learn together how to rightly handle the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, bless your church. We plead and we pray. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your law. As Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers, as recorded in Ephesians 3, open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Cause us to see the depth, the width, the breadth of the love of Christ that is revealed in Scripture. Lord, give us right assurance and lead us to right living. And do that as a result of our study of the scripture together. Now, Lord, I pray that your people will worship you in spirit and in truth. And you will continue, Holy Spirit, to call people to yourself as we sing the gospel together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.